I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to the sixth episode of Caro Pop. I'm very happy to introduce this episode's guest, Mitch Easter. This dates me, but I first saw Mitch Easter when his band, Let's Active, was opening for REM in the fall of 1983 on my college campus. Winston-Salem native Easter had produced REM's first single, Radio Free Europe, back with Sitting Still. And then their EP, Chronic Town, and debut album, Murmur. In that college concert, REM would perform several songs from their next album, Reckoning, which Mitch would also produce along with Don Dixon. These all proved to be landmark recordings. But Mitch wasn't just a soon-to-be fabled producer. He also was a singer, songwriter, and guitarist turning out deeply catchy, uniquely twisted, jangly guitar songs with Let's Active. After that opening gig, I had to seek out the EP, A Foot, that contained Every Word Means No, came the densely detailed debut album, Cypress, with a fantastically bendy Waters Part, and the brightly colored Big Plans for Everybody, one of my favorite albums of 1986. Even as R.E.M. moved on to other producers, Mitch kept producing bands that I loved. Game Theory. The Windbreakers. Velvet Crush. Even Pavement. defining a brand of Southern rock that had nothing to do with Boogie or the Blues and instead presented a brand of power pop viewed through a carnival mirror. After Let's Active's 1988 swan song, Every Dog Has His Day, Mitch Easter didn't release another album of his own songs till his belated solo debut, 2007's Dynamico. He continues to produce bands at his North Carolina studio, the Delatorium, though, as he notes, the industry has changed. In our conversation, Mitch discusses his childhood friendship and early collaborations with Chris Stamey and Peter Holsapple of the DBs, his love of the move, his favorite guitars, and of course, his work with R.E.M. What was the key to Peter Buck's guitar sound? Hint, it wasn't just the Rickenbacker. Mitch also talks about Big Star and so much more. I could have spoken with Mitch Easter for hours, and I almost did. So this conversation will be spread over two Carol Pop episodes, so we don't have to cut out any of his great stories about producing and performing some of the best music of the 1980s and beyond. I'm a fan, as you can tell, and I expect you are too, or will be. Enjoy. Thank you so much uh, for joining me. I really appreciate it. You know, I first saw Let's Active uh, opening for REM in the fall of 83 at Irvine Auditorium at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, 
Oh, yeah. I remember really enjoying you guys. I didn't know your music then, but uh, it was totally up my alley. And I also remember that you, you ended with a solo version of classical gas. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we did that. <laughs> what's, by the way, what's, this, what's the, sort of the secret to choosing a good cover song to do? Well, you know, songs like that sometimes will just like be in your memory. They like, they're sort of standout songs, you know? And then if, you know, I, I, I'm sure when I first heard that song, I didn't know how to play guitar. And then, but it's such a guitar song, you know? So when I thought about it later and I thought maybe I can actually kind of figure this out, it just seems like, you know, well, you, you you might want to do that. But then, you know, the idea of our band playing it, I mean, I think because we were sort of part of that, you know, punk new wave scene, but we weren't really one of those true believers of that, all that, you know, I mean, I, I just felt like I was a little bit too old to really just simply be like a punk band or something, you know, I didn't, I just wanted to play songs I wanted to play, you know, and I thought a lot of our audience back then would probably vaguely know that song from being children, you know, and might just, it might just be amusing to them, you know, and that's the whole motivation, you know, it's fun to play it. I still really like it. You know, it's just a cool, and it's one of these songs that like was a hit, you know, and there's no other hit record like that song, you know? So there's just a few of those, you know, in the sort of canon and um, they're, they're just fun to think about, you know, like they just don't exactly fit into anything, but a lot of people liked them, you know, that was a big hit. Also, there's such good, cool guitar work on that song, but the original recording has all those strings all over it. And to just hear it as a guitar thing, I mean, again, this is like a long time ago already, but I remember being kind of knocked out by that as well as, you know, just enjoying your own original music. Well, you know, what's cool about that song, of course, is the guy Mason Williams who did that that was, you know, he was one of the writers on the Smothers Brothers show, and I think he maybe debuted that track, you know, on their show. And I, I, I can kind of remember seeing that when I was a kid. But there's all these like, you know, A-list people on that record. I mean, I think that Mike Post did the arrangements. You know, Mike Post wrote all these fantastic TV themes, like most notably the Rockford Files theme, and. And I think it's Jim Gordon playing drums, you know, who played with everybody. He was like one of those Wrecking Crew guys who then went on to insanity much later in life. But he was a great drummer, you know. So it's there's a lot about that song that's just kind of cool to for me to remember. I think that I think you were the I think you introduced me to the song "Back of a Car" too because uh, I was, you know, like I got into Big Star sort of via. You know, like you playing back of a car and Game Theory, who you produced, uh, covering "You Can't Have Me." Uh, you know, the the Bengals had done "September Girls," but back then you couldn't just sort of go into a store and pick that up. So I just read, you know, in buckets of brains that this is these are albums are on everyone's top ten lists, and you seemed, you know, like you were sort of the next generation beyond this cool thing that I needed to discover. Yeah, I mean, again, I just thought that "Back of a Car" was such a great song. You know, it's like should have been a massive song that everybody knows, but. You know, just due to the now well-documented troubles in distributing, you know, the big star records, not many people heard them when they came out. And we were lucky around here because um, they had played, the local radio stations had played a song off the first album here. So we actually knew who big star, well, well me and my friends knew who they were. But, um, yeah, you know, that's just a great song to play. I mean, now I, I almost feel like big star has really been done and they're very famous. But it's a very strange kind of fame, right? It, it happened for them, you know, 40 years after they made their records. I mean, you could say it was the ultimate slow build, you know, because almost as soon as those records came out, they were kind of legendary because they were hard to find. And people that heard them loved them, you know. But, you know, then there was the rumor of the third record, which was never kind of officially released. And 
and then there was like a cassette bootleg you could get, you know, and this is going back to the 70s even, you know, and then there were the funny pressings that would come from Germany or whatever, you know, it was like, it's been like that for decades almost, you know, it took forever for there to be sort of legitimate re-releases on those records. Yeah, now you get all these colored vinyl versions, so you know that they've oh yeah the tipping point. Yeah, no doubt the you know Dolby Atmos remix is being done right now. I I have no idea, but you know that's a very interesting uh, trajectory. You know on that on that career. So do you consider what you were doing to be sort of the next generation of, you know, or sort of a continuation, not yet next generation because you're not that much, you know, it's not that much older uh, than you, but but just sort of. There's a there's sort of a thread from you know like big star velvets that sort of thing to what you were doing which was sort of different from these threads of you know that other people in the eighties were following. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, the thing about uh, me and my buddies from around this area that are like the guys in the DBs and stuff, you know, all of us were uh, maybe seen as uh, as as oddballs, you know, in the scene that we were able to finally be noticed in, and I think it's just because we we grew up with older stuff that we still liked, you know. And we were really happy about the scene. Well, I, I'll speak for myself at this point. I was really happy about what happened, you know, like in 77 and all, um, because, you know, I sort of became an adult, right, when like Yacht Rock was sort of dominating the charts. And, you know, we, we all really appreciate Rock Rock, Yacht Rock, but I couldn't imagine playing that music, you know. I'd grown up with a lot more of a rock kind of sensibility. And suddenly this weird, mellow, you know, um, Pino Grigio music was sort of dominating the charts, and I, I, I was really worried, you know, like, I'm 21 now, and what am I going to do, you know, and then sort of like punk comes along, and and it opened a million doors that we could slip into, but as soon as, you know, I got to have a band where I could be playing out in, and getting outside of just, you know, a super local, dead-end kind of world, you know, a scene where it felt like we could play in other cities and get noticed and meet people and all that, um, you know, even though that background scene was there, I didn't particularly think about it. I just, I was sort of doing the music stuff I've been wanting to do ever since I learned how to play guitar, you know, and it sort of evolves all the time. Um, but does that make sense? I mean, we just, you know, it was like we, we were sort of operating in that scene, but not really exactly thinking about it too much, except as an opportunity. And I loved a lot of the bands that were coming along, you know. I just didn't feel the need to uh, worry about the playbook, you know. And I think a lot of us from Winston-Salem listened to these bands like The Move and things like that that also weren't super well-known bands. I now know, of course, that Rick Nielsen was listening to The Move, but I didn't know Rick, I didn't know Rick Nielsen, you know. I would have been thrilled to have been able to talk to somebody aside from, you know, my buddies at high school about the move because it, it seemed incredibly, you know, tiny. But, of course, the communication world was so different back then, too, and it was, like, harder to find out about things. But in a way, that made it all very exciting, you know, to meet a fellow fan or whatever. Anyway, somehow or other, you know, between the music that I grew up liking and my abilities, <laughs> you know, the sound came out that we did that was sort of a just, you know, a product of all that. What was the first album that you just obsessed over? That you just couldn't stop playing? I don't know. I mean, that would surely be my first album, which was Beatles 65, which I played so much. I, I, would, I just walked around with it, you know. I just carried it with me when I went somewhere. It was like my wallet, you know. <laughs> and I remember, like, I, I would go for, visit this friend of mine and um, in the evening and then come back home and, and, and walk to his house. And, and one night the record slipped out of the sleeve and hit the pavement and... 
um, you know, knocked a chunk out of the first song, which was maybe a really good song, like I'm a Loser or something like that, which was a real drag. You no reply. And, okay. Anyway, I remember putting, like, electrical tape over that, you know, just so it wouldn't just crack anymore and continuing to play what was left of that record. So, I mean, that one got a kind of obsession that nothing can match, but... Um, after that, I don't know, probably those Move records, you know, were, were big ones. I mean, uh, Message from the Country, I just would sort of play every day for, you know, decades or something, it seemed like. I don't know. <laughs> so kind of like, so, so like after Jeff Lynn formed, joined the band, that was more that period of Move instead of sort of the earlier. Well, I liked it all. You know, the first one I heard was Shazam. Chris Damey had that record, and I don't know how he came to buy it. Maybe he just liked the cover. I mean, because that's sort of how you would buy records, right? I mean, you couldn't. By the time I was a teenager, like the listening booth kind of thing had sort of gone away in record stores. I can remember those, but we weren't able to audition things by the time I was able to really buy records. Anyway, he had Shazam, and I thought that was the best thing I'd ever heard because it was, um, you know, by then I was interested in playing loud through martial amps and stuff, and um, that record had that approach. You know, it was like a heavy rock band, but it was pop music, and I thought, this is the future, you know, and it was not the future, but I wish it had been, you know, um, because so many songs on Shazam still sound fantastic to me now and the recording is really great you know I just thought the sound of that record was sort of beyond anything else at the time so I really love Shazam and then from there I got the first move album which is a little more of a 60 sounding record you know it's not quite as heavy but it's non-stop great songs you know um, basically everything of theirs I bought I just couldn't get enough of that was exactly what I wanted to hear and even the sort of lesser ones you might say like looking on are actually really cool records and so i mean i kind of obsessed over every move record to tell you the truth through every period but when that when jeff lynn got in the band they they got better in a, in a way and and a little bit more of the time too you know whereas the first record is very much like vocal group you know by the jeff lynn era it's definitely more of the sort of 70s auteur kind of band you know and they started making these very studio kind of records like I don't think that the message from the country material was really played on tour, you know, to an extent. I'm, I'm, I may be wrong about that, but it's it's, it's a lot more stu studio. And that was really what I loved, you know, these very studio kind of records. Yeah, they had these complicated, long songs. They would just kind of like go off on these twists. And like Shazam, I listened to recently. And I'm like, these songs just, they just keep veering off into places you're not expecting. Yeah, I mean, I was, I'm, I'm still... I have kind of small attention span for jams, you know, and there's a touch of jam creeping into everything, but theirs are, are within reason, I think, and they're pretty cool. What were the first songs that you write and wrote, and were they trying to sound like The Move or Big Star, or just, you know, you don't know what they were trying to sound like? Well, I mean, the first time I ever tried to write anything is before I had heard either of those bands, so I don't know what I was thinking. And, and really, the first song that I think of as having written, I just sort of had this chord progression, you know, and the guy in, in the band I was in who could sing kind of made up the melody. So he, he wrote it every bit as much as I did. You know, it was a long time before I really felt like I wrote a song. But um, in high school, I started really trying to work on it when, uh, you know, because I, I did a lot of stuff with Chris Damey in the early 70s. Um, when we started playing together, because we kind of had the same sensibility. And he got this... Um, four-track tape machine that you could ever dub on and it was set up in my basement and he and I both just were down there all the time recording so the stuff that I was writing it's almost like I was writing it for the tape machine you know um, those are the first songs I wrote and they were very much an attempt you know a failed attempt to sound like the move absolutely but you know the thing is you just it's not even good to be any good at doing that you know fortunately 
they just came out sounding like something else. Um, you know, I mean, it's like that's what's kind of like now I could probably write a fake move song. But back then, tribes, I might I couldn't, you know, I just write a thing and I might be thinking about some move song. And that's as close as I could get. Yeah, that's that's always like I always enjoy that when you you hear the band was thinking, oh, yeah, there, this is our attempt to do this kind of song. And you're like, really, it sounds nothing like that, but it's a great song. You know, it's like, oh, OK, uh, you know. Elvis Costello's You'll Never Be a Man was his pretender song. I'm like, okay, uh, that's fine. Whatever your own innate ingredients are, just kind of mix up with what you think you're doing. Yeah, I remember like, you know, that first Lenny Kravitz record was very likable. And of course, it had that very sort of, you know, dare I say, retro-ish kind of recording approach. It was cool. And then the second record seemed to be him really having fun, like, imitating his heroes but it was a little too good at that you know i felt like oh here's the curtis mayfield one you know and stuff and it's that that then it starts to not even seem real even if it's a good song you know so uh anyway fortunately i don't ha- i didn't ever have the skill to really do that so right so so chris Damey, who who ended up in the dbs was a good friend of yours since like how old were you uh, he thinks that we met after the first grade but i think we met after the second grade but anyway a long time ago is when we met and um Neither of us played music then, um, and I started playing in bands, and then about a year later, he started playing in bands, you know, so, I mean, we sort of have done a lot of the same stuff as kids, um, but I, I knew him, you know, uh, but when I first knew him, we were still sort of audio nerds, like, we, were, we sort of were like we're into tape recorders and you know, just messing with that kind of equipment, you know, that sort of thing, but not actually playing it. Um, and then, you know, we played together some in high school and stuff and then kind of diverged after that. You know, I, I mean, I, he's still somebody I talk to and do things with, but um, I haven't been in a band with him since I was a teenager. Right. You guys had Rittenhouse Square when you were in high school and Sneakers later. And, and yeah. Peter Hulse was in Rittenhouse Square also, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was the volume three of that band. The the drummer is, was the guy who liked that name. And he had, you know, he had this theory that even if... Rittenhouse Square broke up, that if he formed a new band, it should be called Rittenhouse Square, so that you could capitalize on the fame that had been achieved in the earlier version, you know? And of course, I had no idea at that time that that was actually a place or anything, you know? We just we just were like, oh, okay, you know, so we just used that name. But there had been two other versions of that band. And the previous, the one before the one with me and Peter and Chris was kind of interesting because it was like this giant cover band that was very ambitious that would do songs by Yes and then do a song by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And I mean, it was actually good, you know, but it was quite a different thing. So when you would think about yourself, you know, doing music, did you see yourself as a, you know, front man for a band? Did you see yourself as sort of the guitarist, songwriter? Or were you already sort of thinking about kind of, you know, being behind the scenes, too, and making the sounds and turning the knobs and, you know, being sort of the George Martin type character? At first, you know, I just wanted to get in there somehow. You know, I mean, I started playing guitar in 1967 and it was just sort of in the air. You know, this there were so many sort of just images of like teenagers back then, like on the beach playing a guitar, you know, or whatever, wherever playing a guitar. You know, it was just in the air and it did seem like a lot of fun. And the music was great, you know, around that time. And I was 12. Um, so, you know, at first I just wanted to be doing that. I, I, the actual artistic, you know, angle was way secondary to just the sort of kid desire to be doing a thing, you know. So um, I really loved the ventures. The first record I bought myself was Walked Out Run 64, which is still a really crazy track. And um, 
you know, so they had this, you know, they were an instrumental band, they had a lead guitar player and a rhythm guitar player, and I thought, maybe I can play a rhythm, that's maybe not as hard, you know, so I was sort of unambitious, you know, I just wanted to be able to play rhythm guitar in some band, and that would be good enough. Um, and, you know, it just evolves from there, like I was in a band still happily playing rhythm guitar when the lead guitar player left. And by then it's like, well, okay, you do it, you know. And so I started, you know, noodling around and being horrible and being the lead guitar player and, you know, being so much worse than the guy who had left. But just the great thing about playing when you're a kid is that your quality control is very, you know, lax and you're not worried about it either. So I just started doing it, you know. Um, but, you know, the idea of being the front person, I mean, I was always pretty modest about all this stuff. And so the first band that I was ever in where I was the front person, so to speak, was Let's Active. And that was also almost like it dawning on me that, like, well, maybe I should actually sort of have a band as opposed to being in somebody's band or being sort of a partner kind of person, you know. But it's kind of circumstance, you know. Um, and then the recording interest just was uh, always there because I just loved records, you know. And um, I just always thought about what are they doing? What is What is that sound, you know? It was real hard to read about it. I remember reading about a session and how it was done sort of technically, I think for the first time in like an electronics magazine, you know, there used to be these magazines like popular electronics, you know, that were sort of for like hobbyists and people that wanted to build things. And and I would read those and I just and, and that was the first place where I ever found any description of what they were actually doing, you know, which was great. I mean, I love the mystery of that. You know, there's a lot of information about all that now. But anyway, I just thought it would be cool and i just always loved machinery you know and tape machines and stuff so it was kind of but by the time i really did it it was just sort of means to an end you know it's like i want to make records um not signed to you know geffen you know how can i do this myself you know it's kind of thing it was just sort of thinking that way but just also having an affinity for messing around with machinery. So with your early bands, would you be the one who would be like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to record us and see what it sounds like. And maybe we'll even try an overdub or something. Yeah. Well, of course we had no way to overdub on the machines we had at first. I mean, the family tape recorder was a mono tape machine that would record and play back, you know, and then later I had a stereo tape machine that would record and play back, but you couldn't overdub. I mean, there was a thing where you could copy to another tape machine and add something at that stage, right. but I, I never did that. Yeah. But yeah, I was the one with the tape machine. And then Chris Damey also, had a tape machine and he started recording a lot of bands around here um before he was playing in bands he he actually took his out to shows more than than i did so um yeah it was pretty primeval but you know i just liked it i liked the whole thing of it and then you know hearing yourself come back off the recording device was sort of magic and you know and then when we got sort of better at it it became like maybe i could actually sort of do this more you know it just was a slow evolution in the thinking when you look back on it where have you been happiest uh on stage or you know in the studio i think they're really equal they they they're just different you know i mean in the studio you have a lot more control but then it's also slow and potentially not very exciting most of the time you know and, but it is exciting when it sounds good and stage is sort of exciting all the time but then you can also have the sinking feeling that like okay this is there is a problem and we're not going to get this fixed in the next 45 minutes of this set so yikes you know there's there's a different kind of drama there because it's I always compare the live shows to bowling you know you throw the ball and then you just hope it hits the pins you know that's sort of what shows are like once you start them they just keep going until they're over you know so that's kind of excitement too i mean i'd really like to play live but um 
I, I guess in the end, I, I'll, I still like recorded music better than live music, you know. But playing live music is really fun. I mean, they're equal. They're just really different. Was, was there a recording that you did that sort of made the light bulb go off? You thought, oh, I, I got something really interesting on this. This is something I could sort of pursue as like a career and not just like something I'm doing on the side. Well, you know, I was talking about um, Chris and I making these tapes in my basement in high school, and, and we got a lot better at it. You know, the first ones sound a certain kind of furry, kind of distant way, and then the later ones sound kind of good, you know, and uh, that was in the span of a year, you know, with sort of like no equipment. I mean, we had no equipment. You know, we had like a couple of microphones and a tape recorder. There was not even a mixer, you know, it was super primal. And somehow we got better at it. And then in college, we kept doing that kind of technology and adding one or two little tiny pieces of equipment that we could get a hold of. And the results got really a lot better. So really, by the time I was in college, I really did think, okay, I know how to do this. You know, I knew that the recording studio equipment was more sophisticated and everything, but I knew it was just more sophisticated version of what we were doing, you know, and... Um, so I thought, well, you know, how can I fail if I get my hands on some better stuff, you know? And, you know, yes, there's many ways to fail. But, you know, it, it was really what we did on the four-track machine that made me think I could really do it. Because the results are really okay. So when you opened the drive-in studio, which became like one of these fabled studios of the early 80s, you know, it was like the Muscle Shoals of Winston-Salem. Um, were you thinking at the time, this is like my business you know, that I'm starting or were you, was it still more like, I'm just sort of, it's an evolution of, I like recording bands and I'm going to get some better equipment. I'm going to put them in this garage and, you know, just go from there. Well, I did have to think about business, you know, cause I was getting out of college and I was formulating this in my head when I was still in college and my parents were wonderful and supportive of me playing music, but they also didn't want me to starve, you know, and my dad was suggesting things I could do, you know, career wise in a incredibly nice way because he was, you know, he he was a accounting executive at Western Electric, which is part of AT and T. So you know he he wasn't like a A and R man. You know, nevertheless, he thought that music was cool. You know, and he was all in favor of it. But he was also sort of kindly suggesting that maybe I would like to be a tax attorney. You know, which you know is a different vibe altogether. So um, you know, I I really appreciated that my parents were like that, and I didn't want to disappoint them horribly nor starve. You know, but I just thought I could maybe do this thing and pull it off. So, you know, I, I did think of it as like, okay, I have to get a job. I have to show my parents I have a job, and I do need money, and I do want to do this music stuff. So it was it was all the stuff. I mean, I, certainly the, I spent the most time thinking about just how it felt and is it working and, you know, are we doing cool things. Um, but, you know, getting paid to do it and all was crucial uh, because if I didn't get paid, I'd have to do something else. year was the, as you know, because I know you asked about it a lot, was the 40th anniversary of the release of the first R.E.M. single, the hip tone uh, release of uh, Radio Free Europe and Sitting Still recorded with you at the drive-in studio. How many how many bands had you recorded at that point when you recorded R.E.M.? I think at the studio, um, there had been very few sessions. The very first one that was kind of for real with the equipment that I was using then was um, the um, Crackers debut record uh, this is was Steve Almas's band along with Karen Hagaloff and JPEG and um, they came down from New York and it, it literally was the inaugural 16 track session in this place 
And the great thing is that it came out on Twin Tone Records, which was an important indie label, you know, back then. So that was a great start. And I also did this seven inch with the Cosmopolitans, which is also this weirdly legendary little record called How to Keep Your Husband Happy. And that's a record that still pops up in discussion, which is cool, you know. Um, so I'd done those and, you know, maybe one or two other things before that REM session, but, but not much. I think that their thing was in the spring of 81, and the first session I had done was in the summer of, of 80. So, um, you know, and it wasn't like it was just booked up at first. So I, I really think I'd done three or four things before them, maybe. Yeah, and you you'd said that Peter Holsapple from the DBs uh, and Rittenhouse Square, old friend, had been the one who had recommended REM to to you or to, told, you know, to, recommended you to REM and said, you should yeah. you know, check this out. Um, so, so again, you have these kind of like-minded musicians, uh, you know, with this aesthetic kind of, you know, having a network, which is great. Um, when they came down and played, did you, did you think, oh, this band is, this band's going somewhere? (laughs) Or did you think, yeah, there's just another group of really great guys and musicians and I like these songs? Yeah, I thought they were a very likable rock band, and they definitely felt like of the the moment, you know. But it has been a little bit interesting to talk to all these people around that single and hear them talk about how they had never heard anything like that before and i'm thinking like really because i mean it's it's certainly distinctive but it is like other things in a formalistic sense you know i just think that people that were younger than me had not heard as much i don't know what garage rock or something i think maybe the i guess if you were a certain age and your references from what you heard you know on the radio and all really was you know Yacht Rock, not to pick on Yacht Rock. Maybe just the rawness of it and the sort of immediacy of the band was really striking, you know. Uh, to me, it was just really good. I just thought, what a great song. I like these guys, you know, and that was kind of it. And I felt like, this is great. This is the kind of thing I want to be doing in the studio, you know, bands that I can make sense of. Because one of the things back then was that, you know, I I thought, well, if I'm in the recording business, I have to just record whatever comes in, right? And that could be kind of strange or depressing or whatever, or I just wouldn't even know what to do with it. And they made sense, you know, to me. So that was kind of a relief. And um, but you know, also they, I liked them, you know, it was it was great. But yes, it was sort of in the grand tradition of rock music was how it hit me. Well, and I would imagine also like when that that single took off, and then you recorded. You know other other uh you know their, their ep chronic town murmur and reckoning that by you being associated with that you had a bunch of bands that had good taste coming to you because they were you know if, like you could have you could have uh just had some terrible metal band come in and become big and then you would have had all these metal bands knocking on your door yeah i mean the thing is that you know it, it is a kind of self-selecting world out there right and, and it's like um i think i could have had a fine time recording metal bands but i don't think i really had the the expertise you know i um maybe i would have developed it but i think people just get around you and they feel whether it's the right thing or not it was just really fortunate to me that i got to work with these people that that were easy to be around you know because i mean definitely a bunch of like really roadhouse tough guy you know hard drinking hard living you know blues guys would probably pick out right away that i was just you know even if they didn't have some of the terms of the day like pop wuss, they would have detected that I was not exactly like them, and maybe they wouldn't come back, you know. But these bands that did come into the studio liked it, and they got along with me because because I like them, you know. So yeah, I was just really fortunate. I mean, if if I'd gotten like ten disco bands in a row that came in and realized that I was 
a terrible disco engineer, then the career would have just sort of ended, you know. Um, there is a lot of fate in all this. Right. Sure. You might have been a good disco engineer, and then you would have had this all other career. Well, I probably would have had more money. So, I mean, there's there's a lot to be said for that, you know. In its day, disco was a real money maker. So, R.E.M. comes in with Radio Free Europe and Sitting Still. What is it that you did as a producer on that recording as opposed to just, you know, I think people imagine, well, you just, you know, set up the mics and let them go. Well, you know, on a, on a two-day session where you have to record and mix everything, there is a lot of set up the mics and let them go. Um, but also, you know, I mean, they were very together. The song sounded good. They'd obviously played the songs. They weren't, like, learning it on the spot or anything. And, um, you know, there wasn't time to get fancy, nor was there any desire to get fancy. You know, there was this huge anti-music industry kind of attitude among bands like them. You know, anything that smacked of commercial rock was not what they were going to do, you know. And um, so, you know, but at the same time, I mean, my recordings that I had done on my own were already a little bit bogus in the sense that I liked having different guitars come in at different times for, for different sounds and adding a little percussion note at the start of the chorus or whatever it is, you know, things that define it a little more and take it away just a little bit from the live performance and make it somehow just a little better. You know, I'd, I'd always kind of say things like that to the extent that there was time to do those things or a willingness from the band to even consider it. But, you know, I wouldn't consider that like a real production kind of session because I had never laid eyes on those guys until the night before. You know, I didn't know anything about them. So, you know, it was very much on the spot. But, you know, having recorded myself for a few years at that point, I did feel like I knew a thing or two about this or that, and I would just say stuff. But it was so informal. I mean, it wasn't sort of... I never did sessions where the band would be like, let's work on the songs for a few months and refine them and get them tighter and, you know, make them more accessible or what. You know, there's none of that. I mean, there was such a in that sense, it was like a punk session because it's like, here's what we do. Don't fuck it up. You know, and I dug that, you know, but they weren't really that way. They were open to some some things. And especially when we continued into Chronic Town where we had a little more time, we did a lot more funny business in the studio, which they enjoyed, and me too. And I, I just think it you know, adds to records to have a bit of that stuff on there. But it's that kind of production as opposed to you know, very strict production. Right. That's what, that's to the, right. We're going to do the drums now and then the bass and then the, you know, that sort of Yeah, thing. no, everybody played together. And, I mean, I'm sure we'd probably we'd make a change on the spot. Like, you know what, this part's going on too long. Let's cut it in half. You know, th that kind of thing could happen really fast without a lot of discussion, you know, but, um, I mean, always sort of referring back though, to what the band really does, you know, was the sort of ethos. When they came in and you just talked to them, did you feel like, Oh, we're really musical kindred spirits. We have sort of similar tastes, that sort of thing. Or Yeah. You know, they came to my house the night before, but back then people would like stay at my house and we go over to the studio the next day. And they did that. And, you know, so what do you do? Um, you play records, you know. So we played records that night, and people have asked me, what did you listen to? And I can't remember one thing. I have no idea. I probably made them listen to The Move or something, you know. they. I mean, it was barely not the 70s at that point, so these would have been 70s records for the most part. We probably listened to, you know, the Buzzcocks and, you know, things that were happening then. But it was great. It was just fun. It was like... I felt like this is great. This is exactly what I want to do with my life. Actually, I want to hang out with people like this and play records. You know, <laughs> I had these sort of like humble, friendly aspirations about what your time should be spent doing, and that seemed to me to be like a totally good thing to be doing with your life. Were they? Was one of them sort of more into these these sort of crate digging? Let's pull pull this record out, or were they all you know equally kind of engaged in that? 
exercises. I, I don't remember. I mean, the assumption would be, of course, Peter Buck would be the guy going through the – and that may be true. I just don't remember. I just remember it was um, – it just felt good. You know, it was fun. And it, and it certainly wasn't like one of them was bored and looking at the wall. You know, it was a fun, engaged kind of evening. And then we went over and did that that session. So it was it was fast. When I spoke to you for an earlier story, you talked about Peter Buck's sound, and a lot of people would sort of look back and say, "Oh, it's like the Birds, but sped up," or you know, Velvet Underground, but jangly, or something like that. And you talked about specifically that he was using these thick coil strings. Um, is that something he was doing from the start, or is that something that sort of picked up on? You know, I probably shouldn't speak for him, but I kind of think maybe he bought a guitar that had strings like that on it and he thought sure you know uh i don't i but i don't know um you know the the, um the heavier gauge strings that he was using are like what everybody used in the mid 60s but by the 70s everybody was using much lighter strings you know guitar playing got a lot more wiggly and fancy and lead oriented but um if you listen to something, I mean, to me, the sort of sonic antecedent for what Peter Buck was doing sometimes was more like House of the Rising Sun by the Animals than Roger McGuinn, even though the the link there, of course, is arpeggiated stuff, you know, playing notes individually. But House of the Rising Sun is very strict, strict and very clear. You know, you can really hear every single string. And I'm sure that Hilton Valentine, the guitar player in the Animals, was using big old flat wound strings like Peter Buck used and nothing else will make that sound and a lot of people loved the way Peter played and wanted to you know and went out and bought Rickenbacker guitars and stuff but what they didn't do is they didn't put on medium gauge flat wound strings so they never really got the same tone as him plus I mean he just sounds like himself like everybody does um, but yeah that was a really cool thing about him and at the time I was completely stunned you know that he used flat wound strings and stunned that he used medium gauge strings but simultaneously really respected it too i mean i thought this is badass you know because first of all it takes you have to build up some muscles you know to play those big old strings but it's a great sound you know um when you listen to the older well actually most of the beatles catalogs those are flat wound strings you know and they they're cool sounding you know there's different but they were so out of fashion the only people using flat wounds when peter buck was were jazz guys you know so i just really thought that was exotic and great were people playing Rickenbackers much at that point also? I don't know. You know, Rickenbacker guitars are weird. You know, you, when you see 60s bands, you see a lot of Rickenbackers. But if you go back and look at the production totals that, from back then, it was really small. Like, they were a small company back then. But the guitars were really popular. And they've never become a big company on the scale of Fender or Gibson. But they're bigger now. But I never see anybody playing them. But they're always known, and they're always kind of famous it seems to me they had another blip in the 80s you know from peter buck and johnny marr and other people that played rickenbackers you know um but no i mean I, the, the the only person that i knew personally i think that played a rickenbacker back then was richard barone um from the bongos and he played rickenbackers for a long time he doesn't anymore um but yeah, it's just, it's odd, you know. They have a funny fan base. The people that like them really like them, but I don't actually see people using them much. And they are sort of odd guitars. Eighty one, the same year that uh, you recorded the you know first REM single, you also formed Let's Active, right? Yeah. First of all, what were you what what guitars were you playing at that point? Um, well, when that band started, I was playing a Fender Stratocaster, which is sort of like the world's most common guitar, but it was exotic for me because I'd only ever played Gibsons, and 
I guess maybe the, a year or two before that, I'd gotten this Stratocaster from a friend of mine who had a guitar shop, this guy, Sam Moss. And that was a real revelation to me because just the sound of it and the way it reacted and everything was so different. And it was it was sort of more right for the music of the day. So that that guitar had a lot to do with the kind of stuff I was making up for the band. And um, and I loved it. And But, you know, I also just really like guitars. So I know now, and I knew it then, but I didn't care, that, you know, the public... They want to see you with the same guitar forever. You know, you want to see Bruce Springsteen with a Telecaster. It's just wrong if he plays anything else, you know. And people that do stick with one guitar, I think that's a really smart thing to do, just sort of, I don't know, career-wise, you know. But I just couldn't do that. I just like guitars. So I started playing all kinds of things. Um, so I borrowed some Telecasters and used those. And then I got a Rickenbacker myself. I started thinking about Richard Barone's uh, 330 model, which is those pointy ones that look more like what Pete Townsend played. And um, so I got that guitar, and I started using that in Let's Active. That, that turned out to be a really good stage guitar. I, I really like those things for playing live. There's something about it that works for me. Um, so I started playing them, too. So something like Waters Park, like what's the, is that, it, that has a very sort of, I hate, to, I know you don't like the term, but sort of this great jangly sound to it. Is that oh, absolutely. Is that well, you know, it is, and um, you know, I love the fact that that has become an iconic thing relative to me because it wasn't even recorded with an amp. You know, it was recorded with a um, Schultz Rockman, which is a device that, you know, Tom Schultz invented, Tom Schultz from Boston, and to get the Boston type guitar sounds, you know, which are very distinctive and a little bit otherworldly, you know. And those those Rockman things came out, and, and the name, of course, was kind of a play on the Walkman. And, and But they were popular back then, but they were not ever taken seriously. It was always like, ha-ha, you know, it's not really an amp. It's just this thing you plug into, and it makes a sound that sounds like Boston. But, um, you know, sure. So I had one of those things, and, and um, when we recorded Waters Part, the guitar that's on the record was really meant to be just sort of a placeholder guitar when we cut the track, I thought. Uh, you know, we always recorded with the band all playing at once, but we also gave ourselves the option to replay our parts or fix them or whatever. Um, but I, I may be wrong about this, but I think that song was recorded kind of in the morning, like the late morning. And so just to get rolling, I just plugged into the uh, the Rockman as opposed to setting up a amp and a microphone and all that and recorded the track. And it was really cool sounding, I thought, you know, and, and I didn't make any mistakes, really. So it's like. All right, the guitar's done too. Yeah, you know, and you know, but all these kind of guitar types, you know, and, and guys that buy five thousand dollar amplifiers and stuff are sort of scandalized to think that anything that they might have enjoyed was recorded with a Rockman because you're not supposed to respect those things. So, but as a sort of semi-contrarian, I love the fact that it's a Rockman, and I could not have gotten that sound any other way, and it's pretty cool. So it's a uh, great sounding record. Are you kidding me? Oh well, thank you. So um, I think that's the only significant Rockman thing on the record, except for actually we we did Waters Part, and then we immediately did that cover of Blue Line by the Outskirts, which is also on that record, and and the rhythm guitar on that is also through the Rockman, I'm pretty sure. But it, and again, because we just did these tracks back to back, we did one, then we did the other, and. Um, the Rockman was already going, so we just kept going with it. But I think that's the only thing I ever recorded with the Rockman, but I used it with a lot of other people just here and there as a as another flavor, you know, of guitar tone. Yeah, so we're talking about Cypress, which was the first full album, which was from 84, and Afoot was the EP that came a year before that, and then you'd formed the band in 81. Uh, what, was your, what was your thinking, A, in forming the band, and sort of your sort of balance of... 
you know, did you sort of see the production stuff as a side thing and less active as your main thing? Or were you really kind of like, yeah, I'm just doing both and see how it goes? Well, it was it was both. But um, I mean, especially back then, I, I, I would have been perfectly happy if the rock career had been big enough for me to not work in the studio, really, because playing live, especially back then, was more fun and more what I wanted to do. I mean, so many people that have recording studios these days are as people love to say, failed musicians. You know, they used to play in bands and they got in the studio business and then it sort of took over. And I didn't want that to happen because I really did like playing and writing songs and all. And it was, um, you know, so, I mean, back then I did about half and half, I think, you know, time-wise, you know, and that was okay. Um, but I was, you know, I would have put all the eggs in the performing basket at that point if I could have. But we just were never quite busy enough to do that. Um Anyway, I, I just did both. And you formed Let's Active with uh, Faye Hunter, who uh, played bass, and Sarah Romwen Wepper, who played drums. Um, yeah. It was also kind of unusual at that point to have two female bandmates. Like, you'd think that shouldn't be that big a deal, but it probably was at that point. Yeah, I, I'm sure. It, I mean, it, it certainly helped us because all of this stuff is just a sort of image that people get about you. You know, they, they like or don't like the way you look. They like or don't like the way you sound or whatever. But you get like about five seconds for people to form that impression. So I think the way we looked was a thing that was useful, you know, and and those two people were really great. You know, they were I'm so lucky to have been able to form the band with them because it made us a little bit distinctive, not just the fact that they were women, but the way it sounded, just the way they played was cool. Um, our, we are playing a show um, next month that's about the 40th anniversary of Let's Active for this museum in Winston-Salem. So I've been going back to the, and we're going to have some guest stars, and I've been going back to these multi-track tapes to hear the parts so I can have some other people play some of the parts. And it has been kind of stirring to hear how Faye and Sarah played in 1982, when the band, you know, was first playing, and Sarah was still a teenager, and it's it's good, you know, it's 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 pretty cool. And they played like I had always been in bands with sort of my friends, and one band sort of morphed into another, and it sort of overlapped with the same characters. And the thing that was so different about that band for me was that I had never played in a band with either of them before, you know. And so we worked really hard to kind of hammer it into a thing, which we did kind of quickly, and that was exciting. It was kind of cooler than you know just an evolution out of some band I'd had in high school or something. Um, so you yeah, always was... set up, I want to have a band as opposed to, you know, I'm, you know, Mitch Easter solo artist like Marshall Crenshaw is Marshall Crenshaw or something like that. Yeah. yeah, no, I thought it was super embarrassing to use my name on things. And I've done it since just to be kind of realistic about it. You know, if I play a show now and the club wants to use my name, it's like, well, sure, you know, because I mean, if I form some band name now, it's nobody would have heard of it or anything, you know. it It's hard to get people to care about anything so to get them to go to shows and all whatever it takes is fine but yeah the idea of me as me was always kind of embarrassing plus it's just fun to think of band names you know i've got my i've got these old school notebooks that i've found where i'm making up band names this is before i was ever in a band you know it's just lists of band names you know and they're all really stupid i'm notorious for coming up with terrible band i have a lot of band names if you if you need any extras i have them um cool Tell me about Let's Active. So I know you've told this before, but what's the you know what's the deal with the you know uh, ungrammatical band name? Um, well, it was it was um, totally from this article written by James Fallows. I guess it was probably in the Atlantic, um, which was a magazine you know I was reading back then, and 
at that time, you know, he was living in different places in Asia because, you know, Asia was sort of on the rise, you know, as a thing. And so he was in Japan and he was uh, at that point and he, he wrote a great article about um, just observations and the, and the use of English in Asia, which was really popular and sometimes, you know, really funny. But that was one of his examples of something he had seen on somebody's T-shirt. The other one that I remember from that article that was really spectacular was a, a coffee shop that had a banner in the window that said, World Smell in Cup, comma, full. <laughs> you know, and um, so, you know, it was just stuff like that. <laughs> and, I mean, it's pretty obvious what they're getting at with Let's Active, but I just thought just sort of on an abstract level, it was just it just kind of had a ring to it. Did you, did you ever sort of like, I don't know, did people give you grief for it? Like, did you ever regret it, or did you always think, no, nah, this is the right name for this band? No, that, that, we, that we didn't get grief for it. And, and I think maybe it's because there was this sort of like Japan thing in the air. I mean, you know, you had things like Atari computers, and Atari was an American company that made up a fake-sounding name, or... The amazing Ginsu knife, you know. I, I think it, people understood it that way. We did have a few um, sad promo posters, um, you know, where people didn't, where they thought they had received a typo or something, you know. So I think one place we played had let's let's get active playing, and another place, the best one was was less less active, like Les Paul, you know, L E S, not two S's. I thought that was kind of good. <laughs> That's a wrap on episode six of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Mitch Easter, as gracious and generous a guest as a music fan could want. Be sure to seek out those Let's Active records, as well as Dynamico, his solo album. You also still can hire him as a producer at Fidelatorium Recordings. I may need to get a band together to do that myself. Next week's Carol Pop will be the conclusion of my conversation with Mitch Easter, and the week after that, well, you'll just have to tune in because this will be the place for another awesome guest. Thank you to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and to Luke Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme. For production engineering and arranging work, check out Karma with a C Productions Worldwide and email Lou at quoted, L-O-U at Q-W-O-T-E-D dot com. The Carol Podcast is produced by the great Chris Swake, who's got a special gleam in his eye right now. Ask him about it. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. And visit the Carol Pop website, C-A-R-O-P-O-P.com, for posts about music, movies, food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks.